United States is going to fare if, you know, China decides to throw its hat in the ring at the same time that we're finally getting serious about Russia. Because I can tell you right now, we are not serious about China. And if this is us being serious about China, God help us. I think the arsenal of democracy is strong enough. It's just that the sleeping giant is still slumbering. Right. Sorry, sorry for that moment of silence. I'm here. I'm your co-host. If you guys want to ask a question or add a new topic, I wasn't following the news this uh, this fine uh, morning on uh, early afternoon here in Poland because I was just doing some of my work. So if you have any updates, I know there have been a lot of attacks uh, throughout the whole front line. Uh, and of course, probably you've discussed already the resignation of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, whatever topics you want to raise are fine by me. And please, we'll go to Luca. Just give me a second that I'm entering the home. It might be a little bit noisy. So I'll, I'll speak in a couple of minutes. Right. Uh, so we'll wait for Luca if you want to become a speaker. Uh, please ask for the mic with the icon in the left bottom corner of your screen. You can always share and retweet the space if you, uh, if you haven't done that already. That's always appreciated. And also Madeleine uh joined us madeline do you have the mic please? i have a question um belarus is saying that uh, poland is a threat to them uh, do you have more information of that what, what kind of information do you expect on a, on a topic like that i i do, is it... i don't know if it uh there was an article and uh it says that uh belarus uh feel threatened by Poland, but I don't know if it's true or if it's uh, a fake. Well, that's what I'm asking. What are you asking? What is the, the true, true statement? Yes. You, you're asking, is it true that they said that or is it true yes, that Poland is, that, is, is actually... That, yes, is it uh, disinformation or is it... Um, yeah, I don't know. So let me answer all the questions. So yes, probably they said it. It's just natural, of course. They create all those crazy uh, theories. Lukashenko, let's remind uh, everybody, was saying that actually Polish people are trying to emigrate towards Belarus. They just begging to get in. The same goes for Ukrainians because Belarus is such a wealthy country and there is no uh, barley and other types of uh, you know wheat in those countries which is of course a silly uh, a silly thing to say Poland never threatened Belarus from the time of Belarusian independence and there is the, no plans we actually finishing finished building a border wall with Belarus so the only threat that that can come uh, are coming from the Belarusian side to the Polish side and and that's it that's just that's just them grabbing at straws and trying to you know put together any sort of disinformation narrative that will create this uh legitimacy for what they do it and i mean and i'm saying them i mean putin and of course his uh little puppet Lukashenko. that's it nothing there's nothing more to it and uh i don't think we should really worry about that thank you and then I have another question. Um, Sri Lanka is, is bankrupt now. 
I saw yesterday on, yeah, on the Sri Lanka, Madeleine, Madeleine, Sri Lanka is not our point in question. If you don't mind, we have oh, questions sorry. in regard to Ukraine, no, so let's oh. go to Luca. Oh, Luca, sorry. please. Um, no, Sri, Sri Lanka, Madeleine, you must understand, is definitely out of our favor. We're talking about China, for example, only in the yeah, context of are, geopolitics pertaining to Ukraine. Madeleine, can we park Sri Lanka and put a pin in it for the moment, please? Okay, no problem. M much appreciated. Thank you. Luca. Yes, I wanted to pick up on a comment from the previous speaker. Sorry, I was on the move. I didn't know who it was. It said they were not serious about China. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? And then I might have a point. Sorry, what, what, you're asking about the comment about China, but what, what, what precise about China? I... Well, why are we not being serious? I, I kind of wanted him to like say a couple of things about that. Oh, why China said that? All right. Tainus, that's to you. I, I'm sorry, I, I did not hear the question. I had a little bit of static on my end. Yeah, I think, I don't know, is, is it you that said that we're not being serious about China and God help us if this is us being serious? That's the, that's the punchline I heard from you. What do you mean by that? Yes, uh, thank you. So the same levels of, uh, so let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, in 2000, uh, 2004, 2008, yes, 2008, a presidential election in the United States, Mitt Romney said that Russia was the primary uh, uh, strategic threat to the United States and uh, the West in general. Uh, he was widely panned and mocked for the statement. Uh, people said, hey, 1984 is calling, and uh, once it's, uh, you know, diplomatic strategy back, and it was a reflection of uh, not taking seriously what we were actually seeing on the ground, which was uh, Russia not just rearming, but engaging in uh, barbaric behavior. First, it was Chechnya, uh, then Syria, Georgia, uh, Ukraine, behavior that was endemic of not just a kleptocracy uh, or an autocracy, but a uh, geostrategic threat to the entire continent of uh, Europe and beyond. Uh, likewise, with China, uh, for decades, we have pandered uh, to the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, extolled the virtues of a peaceful Chinese rise, even as we saw them engaging in absolutely pariah-type behavior. Uh, we saw them engaging uh, in predatory loans, in salami slicing uh, entire areas of the South China Sea. And at the same time, our own military investments uh, were not being made uh, in such a way as to actually fight and win a war, but more or less to, uh, to demonstrate uh, prowess with uh, much smaller numbers of very exquisite systems and programs that many times uh, failed before they actually delivered a credible uh, military capability. And so my point is, now we're playing catch up with Russia. All of our allies, you know, were contributing far less than the 2% GDP in NATO. They're finally getting serious about that. Uh, we're finally redeploying a significant number of forces to Europe. Our diplomacy has hardened. We are willing to arm uh, combatants who are facing Russia head on. And I'm wondering how long it is going to take for us to similarly get serious about China 
because if they make a move on Taiwan now, at the same time that we are trying to get our act together in Europe, it is going to be disastrous because, uh, you know, as, as Axel said before, we are a sleeping giant. Yes, but the last time we had to try and mobilize Freedom's Forge, we lucked out in that we were doing it largely before December 7th, 1941. Uh, Roosevelt was already heavily engaged with, you know, uh, uh, Kaiser. Uh, he was very heavily engaged with Ford and, and a lot of the other uh, shipbuilding and, uh, you know, auto and, and air uh, titans of his day. Right now, we are not doing that. Our logistics, horrible. Our shipyard capacity, horrible. Every 18 months, China is going to be pumping out a Type 003 aircraft carrier. And every four to 10 years, we might as well. Uh, so, so this kind of tells you where we're at right now. We exported a significant number of uh, Javelin missiles well spent to Ukraine. And we don't even really have the capacity to, to generate as many right now. Now, can we grow that capacity? Yes. Can we grow that capacity in a relatively short order? Yes. But if we needed those missiles tomorrow, they wouldn't be available. And that's kind of the point. We saw the same thing happen uh, with Syria and Libya, right? So the Tomahawk land attack cruise missile, uh, uh, an especially important weapon system that has been used uh, in every single major conflict the United States has participated in since Desert Storm. And after every single major conflict, it takes about two to three plus years for us to ramp up production to get new ones. In fact, we've had to even restart the line because the U.S. thought we were going to have some kind of new exquisite system to replace it. And oh, wouldn't you know, that fell flat on its face. So then you have to pay all that money to retool and restart your lines. We're restarting the line with the F-15 Eagle because we overestimated the F-35 after we shut down the F-22 lines. We had to restart the DDG-51, the Arleigh Burke uh, guided missile destroyer lines. Same thing. So we have a very horrible track record here in the United States Department of Defense, unfortunately, uh, since Goldwater Nichols uh the Goldwater Nichols Act of really being able to deliver any kind of credible combat capability. And every time we make a big hedge on new exquisite capability, we end up having to walk it back and then fall back on Cold War era tech that even itself predated Goldwater Nichols. Let's look at the M1 Abrams tank still around from the 1980s predated Goldwater Nichols. We have very few capabilities. Even the F-22, that program started before Goldwater Nichols. So and does... what a great system that is that we pump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the F-22, world's greatest jet fighter plane ever. And we cut production on them for the F-35. And how's that go? Okay, so let me try to see if I understand. So your concern is about uh, China and the military emergence of China and uh, like a potential Ukraine uh, type of situation with Taiwan and also the fact that, you know, the U.S. economy, I mean, of course, there is still a military industrial complex, but uh, it's being a little bit tamed after uh, the end of the uh, Cold War. And uh, you're advocating for, you know, rebooting the whole machinery. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So... The, what needs to be discussed right now is not, wow, we need 
more exquisite systems. It is we need the full what what the U.S. would call dime or diplomatic intelligence, military and economic to get serious about a complete whole of government strategy again, a grand strategy to counter these very existential threats to the world order, because this is not something we're going to be able to just restart quickly. You, you don't, you know, happen upon uh, a 24 hour grand strategy and then have an expectation that you are going to be able to prevail. And it just yeah, so, so I like to say something and then I need to go. So I'll, I'll let you just finish that because it's my work day now. But uh, this was too, too interesting for me to skip. I think Jingle mentioned about uh, something similar to that. Uh, like, you know, you want to have like an intelligence approach to, I want to point out that, I mean, I think, you know, we're moving in that direction, not suddenly, probably the Ukraine situation woke us up collectively. I mean, as the, the West, I think, I don't know if you discussed about it in the space or in 776, have you heard about last week, I think some uh, um, press conferences between MI5 and I think, you know, the, the FBI and the CIA are basically saying to China, look, you know, uh like the game has changed and i think you know that's a public statement and i i would think that it's backed up by by some uh uh you know uh, actual moves uh and they it feels to me it's related to what jingu was saying that you know you need to start there figure out what are the agents of like uh, disinformation and the you know different people that have penetrated our our systems you know of course uh, russia you know we've been doing this but uh you know moving to china because they use the same approaches i I saw a few things moving in that direction. I don't know if you've noticed those. I, I am so sorry that I'm having trouble uh, hearing you. I, I've recently developed uh, really bad tinnitus uh, as a result of my time in the service. So uh, if, if you're speaking about uh, the recent press conference between uh, MI5 and the FBI, yes. Yes. It was good, but it is talk. And simply stating that you have a problem, uh, it, it needs to be backed up by and, and are still shy of having a, a decent. Thanos, can you just can you just repeat? Because I lost you. You have to say it has to be backed by and then we lost a couple words. Sure. You can repeat those. It has to be backed up by a whole of government of a whole of government policy. And it, it needs to integrate all those dime aspects uh, that I had earlier mentioned. And we're not there. And we don't have a, a, a NATO-like force in the Indo-Pacific yet. We have the Quad, and the Quad is a great first step. But the Quad is not going to be able to respond uh, like NATO might be able to respond in six months. So I'm, I'm, my entire point is, is not that, you know, that people don't acknowledge that there is a problem. Maybe they do. They're just not taking it seriously enough. And that a lot of our national security leaders here in the United States have a track record of failure for the past 30 years. It's been pretty abysmal since Desert Storm. Well, I mean, we did it after September 11, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, there was like a refocusing on terrorism. Uh, now that doesn't seem to be the main topic. Um, and there should be a refocusing on other threats, more geopolitical, like you mentioned, in my opinion. Now, the question is, 
is is Ukraine equivalent in terms of signaling as September 11th? Um, knowing that it didn't happen, uh, uh, you know, it didn't happen on American soil. That's the that's the caveat, right? And uh, can it be seen as a September 11 moment to coalesce uh, efforts uh, in the United States and with the Allies uh, also to coordinate intelligence and uh, military planning? That's a big question. You're right, it's probably not happening fast enough, but uh, it depends, right? Can it be seen as a sort of a coalescing moment? You know, I would hope so. You know, if this doesn't count for it, well, then we'll need to wait for uh, an attack on uh, on a on a NATO country on the U.S. soil, which, you know, would be daring because then at that point, you know, it will definitely call us. I think it should be done earlier, you know. The problem is, I think, if I may add to the discussion, uh, the problem is, and I, and I agree with Taylor to, to a certain extent, I, I think to a large extent, that the problem is you have to have a, like a long-term plan and infrastructure for that plan in place. Even in the case of 9-11, if you, if you look like what, what was happening, the plans to react to this, this, this was reactive thinking, right? They, they didn't have, like Rumsfeld himself was just curious that he didn't have a plan for that. And that's why the CIA actually had the, you know, uh, won the day with the plan to, to basically send operatives to Afghanistan and use the Northern Alliance and stuff like that. So, so I think this is, this is really important point, even with Ukraine. I think what Tainos is saying is really important. We didn't have the plan or we didn't plan for a contingency where you have to send a large amount of military equipment to a country that is aligned with us or we feel like this country uh, kind of defending its freedom and its sovereignty is important to us enough to send our military equipment there, right? There were no plans for that and now we kind of uh, of course, we great uh, and the Western leaders and the West and the, and the military structures are great at that, at scrambling, at creating, improvising and adapting, right? But but I agree. As soon as you, if the so if the baseline is thinking nothing bad is going to happen, and let's hope the next year nothing bad is going to happen, and if then then just if something really bad is happening then you have to scramble and think how you're going to react to that. That's just not enough, right? That, that, that's not perfect, for sure. I, I think it has to do with posturing, right? I think the idea of, like, not sending, like, heavy weapons to Ukraine before, it was, like, fitting this narrative, which was very... It's, unfortunately, it is still a strong narrative in Europe even today, and it used to be the narrative in the U.S. across administrations, by the way. Democrats and Republicans of saying, well, I mean, that's kind of like Russia backyard. Like if we send weapons, we're going to provoke them and this will just accelerate them, you know, pushing into a conflict. And the Taiwan is the same thing. China is like, oh, you know, don't do anything with Taiwan. It's our island. And so the question is, if we recognize that those are like systemic or like existential threats, the answer to that is like, well, you know what, screw it, you know, we're going to do it anyways, right? Because if we recognize that, in fact, it's showing the weakness, in fact, it's encouraging those kind of aggressive actions to happen. So, and I, then you want to show strength to begin with, you know? I think you have to be careful when you start assigning blame to specific American political parties, uh, because... Uh, this is something that unfortunately has transcended both political parties. Uh, you know, I there, said both, so. there, there I said was both parties. 
Yes. So there was, for example, during the Obama administration, uh, Secretary Clinton, you know, tried to do a reset button with Russia, uh, with Sergei Lavrov, when uh, they were occupying part of Georgia after fighting the Georgia war uh, during the Bush administration. And we had red lines established for she did of Ukraine. Us. Yeah. And she did this against the warning of the National Security Council. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah, that's you know, true. and there were multiple red lines that had been crossed, uh, both in terms of chemical weapons in Syria and then even the actual uh, first invasion of uh, Ukraine back in uh, 2008 and 2014 and uh, so forth and so on. So it's it's simply a matter of putting things off and such hubris. And, and it is hubris. And, and, and let's let us be very... Uh, honest with ourselves about the West history of national security and military hubris and how many times it has bitten us. It bit us in 1914. It bit us at the Maginot Line. It bit us on 9-11. And it bit us in Ukraine. And we keep telling ourselves that, oh, they would not dare. Really? How many more times with such greater consequences do we have to witness to realize the world has not changed and yes they will dare may i just add one thing there's a, I, I believe that a there's common ground here in regard to us all having simply shed to the extent that we had it any illusions uh, but most importantly uh, we have a couple of examples in the world where societies do understand that they need to defend themselves I'm not saying that South Korea does this anymore because the sunshine policy and, should we say, softening of its stance is evident uh, as a detrimental impact on this. And then again, it is sponsored by the North and the Chinese, don't forget. Having said this, if you look at, for example, the emergence and the deepening and the hardening of the total societal defense concept, Finland has developed and implemented at least since the mid 1980 um i mean further well, this way they started of course earlier but still then you can see how a good conceptual base and i think this is what you were advocating Thanos, that we really have to sit down across the aisle everyone and see this as a monumental challenge to us and not project challenges which we have in the world as such yes everything is interconnected haha it's nice that we're all thinking about climate change and this, that, the other. That's all nice and fine. But if we lose our freedom and if we lose Western society to totalitarianism, the climate doesn't really even factor into it. I you can see it. Agree. You can see it now with the Uyghurs. You can see what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs yet again. And then you see what the outcome is. And it doesn't really matter whether there is water in those areas, whether there is desertification, whether the impact of climate change is there, if people are in concentration camps and being killed in the hundred thousand. I completely agree. And, and this is something, this is a challenge that the West has pretty much across the board, is that our policies, our national security strategies can change in the blink of an eye. And, and especially in the United States, they can ch change every four years and the adversaries that we are going up against are maintaining power for over a decade at a time. 
and really they have no significant uh, shifts in in their intentions and their strategies. And so what but, we but need, we're not prey to that. We're, no, we're not no, passive. No, we what, have agency. We have agency. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I'm not advocating that. What I'm what I'm recommending, though, is that, for example, if the United States Democrats and Republicans were to unite on at least common principles and put them in paper, a national security strategy by the Congress. And this is not to say that we're taking something out of the president's hands or, or whatever, but an affirmation of what the Congress will prioritize doesn't have to be specific systems just grand strategy something that can endure beyond a single administration two administrations maybe something that can go for 20 years something that everyone can get around something that can provide us some kind of a guiding light and imagine for example that you have something like that in the united kingdom in canada and, and yes, we have these kinds of documents in NATO, but come on, that, that again, NATO is a coalition of the willing funded as it is able to be funded. But if individual countries and their political parties, the member states were to come together on what they thought would be important things in a, you know, bipartisan or multipartisan uh, type fashion, it would provide the beginnings of a enduring check against the longevity of our adversaries. My humble opinion. I think we have like a mic check. Can you guys hear me? Uh, hello? Yeah, go on, Luca. Oh yeah, sorry, I, I was dropped. It seemed like I was dropped. Yeah, I think we, we do have an opportunity now. L let's see, for instance, um, um, whether we're, we're gonna, and this is a Democrat speaking, we're gonna have any Democrats voting for uh, this new bill uh, that was uh, uh, just put forward by uh, Lindsey Graham. So again, I think I think this moment, um, you know, can provide unity. I mean, if we cannot unite uh, around these moments, then well, what what's even the point? I mean, of course, we're gonna be doomed against uh, those manipulators that, as you mentioned, seventeen seventy six. They can have like one hundred year plans, well, because you know they don't really change. I mean, it's always the same dictators in power. But uh, again, um, I always thought the Grams is a little bit of like a manipulator himself and I don't like the guy, but if he puts forward the bill, like it seems he did, and I actually have questions about you if you've seen that and confirmed it, about sponsor of state terrorism for Russia. And it uh, reaches uh, the you know, US uh, uh, you know, uh, Congress floor and gets voted in a bipartisan manner. Well, that's a good start. You know, it's a good unifying moment at the same time when the bill for uh, uh, you know um, funding the Ukraine uh, arm armament was voted by effectively all of Congress, right? So, any comments about that? So, individual countries, individual times—that that's goodness. But we need something that transcends beyond that. Nine uh, Eleven was a failure of vision, even though literally you could see everything happening in front of you for well over two decades before that. Same thing for what's going on right now uh, between Russia, China, Iran, uh, you know, North Korea is an oddball, but you know, those kinds of countries aiming for regional hegemony, uh, 
this is this is very apparent and this is something that needs to be countered long term. So while I appreciate, even though I'm not a fan of Lindsey Graham either, I think he's an opportunist. Uh, while that's potentially good legislation, I haven't read the whole thing and I like to read primary sources before I comment on them. Uh, I still feel that we really need to be able to come together on a much broader long-term grand strategy beyond simply this is what this is for Russia because they've been doing this for this period of time. Yes, I agree. I agree 100 percent. Also, you need to consider the level of polarization we went into uh, into this situation or situations is not only one. Uh, a polarized society, you know, after a disputed election, through a pandemic. I mean, it's the it's the worst possible setting. So um, I think, you know, we need a couple of wins. And, and I think we need a couple of unifying bipartisan wins. Okay. And then I completely agree with you. We need a grand strategy that cuts across the polarization where, you know, I feel that before there was like the gang of hate. I mean, I don't remember very well, but like, you know, where you can effectively like have a long-term strategy to counter those threats, you know, before they just blow up in your face. hundred percent so agree. The, the challenge with the gang of eight and the gang of 14 and, and gang of 22 and, and, and all these different groups uh, is that while they were well-meaning, they were self-appointed. And so they had no real power within the respective parties. What you need is for Republican and Democrat leaders uh, to come together and appoint their delegates and then have them negotiate that on behalf of their own personal power uh, so that they're speaking not just as 8, 14, or 22 concerned individuals who are trying to do the best job that they can, admirable, but that they actually have some kind of authority to then whip uh, their political parties to vote and endorse something when it is actually uh, when it has finally uh, gone through the uh, negotiation process. Right, guys, that's uh, that was actually a really interesting discussion. Uh, and thank you for that. Uh, let's not go too deep into the weeds, although it's connected to Ukraine. And I know. Uh, but I would just first like to acknowledge CJ, who just joined us. CJ, can I ask you a question? Because uh, I'm not super updated on the situation, and I saw just a picture of the whole front line uh, on the uh, what's the name of the uh, satellite? Oh. The whole Five. front line. So pretty much. Uh, Sorry, Axel. From oh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Go on, please. Shoot, CJ. Yeah. So pretty much. Long story short, absolutely everything is on fire. And what does that mean? It means uh, HIMARS and, of course, the last few Tashka news are having a sort of devastating impact across the front. Uh, now, pretty much every four or five hours, we see these reports on Russian Telegram and stories from the front of you know this operational pause. And to what extent that's actually happening is remains to be seen because you know Russia is still advancing on the ground, I think specifically near Bakhmut and also Slovyansk, but not under the cover of massive artillery fire across the front. So they're uh, able to push back a little bit. I think Thanos dropped down, but I just unfortunately have to go again. But I just want to bring up one point about, you know, national military strategy as 
it pertains to this conflict. You know, in 2015 was the first time under the Obama administration, you know, three administrations ago, when the national military strategy prioritized uh, countering state actors, particularly Russia, as the number one priority for the entire joint force. And so what does that mean? So that was basically admission that the global war on terror was sort of coming to an end, and it had an effect to change the army somewhat drastically to be more artillery focused, uh, to, you know, kind of bring more HIMARS and MLRS, long range precision fires program, et cetera, et cetera. So in that effect, it was it was helpful to this conflict, you know, because if we're not going to do it in World War Three, of, of course, hopefully not, uh, at least then we can help Ukraine do it. So I totally agree. I think, you know, bipartisan support is so important. And I think, you know, if Crimea didn't wasn't a giant wake up call in 2014 and the Donbass, of course, as well, then this must certainly uh, it has to be. So, you know, all eyes forward. And, I, you know, I think hopefully most of the political spectrum is on the same page about this. But I would just point out that, you know, by having the, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff get together in 2014 and 15 and sort of shaping the way forward, it allowed for more long range fires and not only the U.S. arsenal, but also uh, provided the opportunity to give them to Ukraine. Whereas if this hadn't been the case and we hadn't had such a uh, focused strategy on countering Russia for the last eight years, more or less, then uh, we'd be in a different uh, situation now, probably a worse one, I would say. CJ, would you say, how would you rate the performance of the Joint Chiefs of Staff right now, uh, shifting from uh, GWAT, you know, post OEF, OIF to uh, near peer, uh, or let's just, let's, let's be fucking honest, peer competition. I'd give them a D minus. You know, I, I guess I would, uh, you know, this is, I think, a very important discussion because obviously, you know, the U.S., uh, well, most, a lot of us are from the U.S., but also, too, it is so pertinent to the struggle. I would give them a slightly higher rating only because, especially the Air Force, you know, if I'm going to be real specific about it and, and how they've been able to turn it on a dime. But at least in the Army and my limited experience there, you know, when I, you know, basically commissioned in 2015, the sense was Russia was the only thing on our, our radar. It was the only thing we trained for. Lo and behold, I ended up in Afghanistan twice. But d- despite all that, all of the training, all of the money, all of the resources, everything, every joint venture, red flag in Alaska, where we worked on near peer and EW threats, all, you know, that's all we talked about and all we did. So I guess, you know, from a very tactical level, obviously, I'm very low on the totem pole. It seemed to make it very clear, you know, if you want to talk operational and strategy under my low level, that this was the threat and this is how to counter it. And I think it's been effective in that regard. So I commissioned a little bit earlier than you. I commissioned in uh, 2003. Uh, and so my focus has been 90 percent uh, Navy. And I can tell you, we've been an absolute shit show. We had programs failing. And we just stayed the course because shipbuilding is uh, highly political. Uh, as you can imagine, ships are uh, not just made in shipyards, but their components and elements are spread out throughout all 50 states uh, in order to uh, garner the greatest amount of uh, political support possible. So, for example, with a failing ship class like the littoral combat ship, something that you would say, man, that from its description, that would be perfect to go send to the Black Sea, except for it can't stay underway more than three days without breaking and and really delivers no credible combat capability at all. So we end up having to fall back to, like I mentioned earlier, systems that were designed uh, pre-Goldwater Nichols, such as the DDG-51 
Arleigh Burke class. So while I can appreciate the the Air Force's uh, pivoting, uh, I appreciate uh, the Army pivoting. I think that the Navy has been an absolute disaster. And when you're talking about fighting against adversaries that are across uh, massive oceans and the sea lanes of communication and the necessity of convoys and uh, abilities to secure them with escorts and logistics and multi-domain naval warfare, uh, I am just absolutely appalled, at least if for nothing else, on both the CJCS and the uh, Chief of Naval Operations side. We have had poor leadership after poor leadership. And I'm not going to, yeah, I definitely won't step in the Navy lane because I know you know a lot more about it. And I also would, you know, probably agree. And, you know, that's the interesting part of all of this. Of course, of course, as a joint fight, you know, if one branch or one sort of aspect of it has experiencing a, a critical failure, then the whole thing can fall apart. I guess it's just, you know, in, you know, that maybe there's opportunities that have been missed uh, in terms of, you know, how we could have helped out Ukraine, you know, in the naval realm. And also, but there's probably more in the future where we could maybe make up for it. But um but yeah, no, definitely uh, no disagreement there. I just, you know, in terms of the Army experience, I think they were able to pivot relatively well uh, to set up for this. Mainly just, you know, as a towed artilleryman, hearing about the, that they're going to produce more HIMARS and MLRS, you know, about four or five years ago, I was scratching my head because from my point of view, uh, and it's really pertinent to the, the, this conflict because, you know, the U.S. has a massive air force, right? And also the Navy is the second largest air force. So from my point of view, I, I was very confused have my very low level of the totem pole. Why would we focus on these long range ground fires like rockets when we're always going to have air dominance? And lo and behold, we get in a situation like Ukraine, where bet- between air, you know, parity and EW, this becomes a very critical thing. So I think maybe they were right in that regard, but they could still also need improvement in other areas. Well, we can discuss this a little bit further, Thanos and CJ, if you have time. Uh, next Tuesday at four, what's it? Is it four thirty? I think four thirty. UTC, uh, because we're going to have our friend uh, Jeffrey Fish, Jeffrey Fisher to be exact, um, with us, uh, EW and uh, former US Air Force Colonel, who will be able to talk about exactly that. Superb, yes. So uh, if you guys don't mind, let's turn right now to Watchful Eye, who's been waiting uh, for quite a time. And if you have a question or a comment, uh, please have the mic. Hi, Machi. Hi, everyone. Uh, good day. Amazing uh, discussion. Um, a question that if it's not the right time, you know, if someone could park it there and discuss it during the day, I would like to know uh, what the situation is, uh, you know, to do with Brazil and its position in relation to the war in Russia. Um and uh, if it would not be the right time now uh, to apply pressure on Bolsonaro, who has got um, you know presidential elections coming up in just a few months, for an ambiguous uh, position in relation to Russia and uh, Brazil imports of uh, Russian products. So if someone could touch that, it would be fantastic. I'll be in Brazil in the next couple of days, and it would be good to get there with um, you know so, some unbiased knowledge. Um, and then try and see what I can uh, gather whilst there. Thank you very much. So I think we'll have to either either park it or maybe some of our panelists currently have um, any take on that because I'm, I'm really, uh, I would say, poorly informed on Latin America and uh, and in Brazil especially. So so I won't be rambling on that. Uh, so if you find me that, we will park the question and um, 
and maybe try to come back to it later. But I think it's an important question. I would just know that the the BRICS line uh, is uh, is just pushed so hard by Russian disinformation. I was just for uh, I think seven minutes, like a week ago, in a space pro-Russian space that was targeted at Africa mainly and some other countries uh of course outside the the collective west we would say and the the way they were speaking about BRICS, it's it was like it's just some emerging power and it, it, that's why everybody is afraid of that and and of course russia probably wants to create that optics that they have alternative set of uh, of allies and they create an, a multipolar world i, I think putin was even saying that uh just a short while ago that uh, uh instead of this unipolar world where we so unjust they created more just of course there's nothing more just in a multipolar world like like uh, um, like uh, conducting an, uh, an unprovoked aggression towards completely uh, sovereign country so that's the one small issue with the narrative but when it comes to brazil's position and how it's going to change I, I i won't help you with that so sorry sorry so much for that but but that's a that's a great question uh tavernier yeah it's just a, a quick uh, point about china if that's okay very very short and then i'll drop back down in, in the uk thousands of chinese come for education it's, it's literally they can build 30, 20 story, uh, multi story apartment blocks. They know for a fact the Chinese will cover it with the rent. So it's just a point in a long term strategy. In terms of education, the, the UK universities are absolutely full of Chinese. So it's just a quick comment. Yeah, for sure. The, uh, there's a great book by, uh, what's the name of the, Josh Rogan, right, about the policies toward China during the Trump presidency. But it speaks uh, uh, about so much, so many different issues, and actually shows you um, the level of penetration uh, of the Chinese and uh, culturally in sports domains, of course, in uh, um, in some parts of industry, right? Because that's that's kind of specific uh, to the industries if they are penetrated with the Chinese influences. But that's uh, you know that, that for me the kind of the common factors here in thinking about those challenges although they are different chinese uh, challenge and, and the russian one is that the the level of naivete has to be uh kind of tackled first before we kind of go into uh, some uh, some uh, high level planning and long-term plans and long-term containment strategies because the problem is that the people really have this. Uh, many people have this attitude. That as long as it works, as long as as uh, we're not affected uh, and we actually can make money, uh, it's good. And, and and if it just goes all to to shambles, then we'll we'll figure it out. And usually, when 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 it when it happens, it's just too late to figure it out. Uh, all right, Tom uh, Clark just joined us now. I mean, not just, but but has been um, on our panel for quite some time. And since you're the last speaker apart from the co-host, Tom, uh, currently I'll uh, gladly give the mic to you if you have a question or a comment. Tom, did you hear us? Mic check, Tom Clark. All right, so uh, Domen is joining us. As usual, well, where, where there is a need, there is Domen, as the saying goes. Uh Tom just dropped, so we are just uh, free, just the three of us, Axel, Tom, and... and Yet again, yeah. the triumvirate. 
but we need to have, in order to be full colors, we need one color more. If only we had a Frenchman to join. All right, Domen, can you give me some um, hot takes on, um, you've been probably discussing this this morning when I was at work, uh, on, on Johnson and the whole uh, thing? I have some very lukewarm takes only. Um, is that is that acceptable, Matri, or, or do you want hot ones? Because I'll, I'll need to... Uh... Lukewarm is fine. But... I think it will be very interesting from, you know, just a, just a political watcher perspective. I don't think it will have anything to do with Ukraine whatsoever. I mean, it will have to do with Ukraine, but it won't impact Ukraine at all. Um, I think it's pretty clear uh, that uh, the, the British policy, the British government policy to Ukraine is going to stay exactly as it is, uh, you know, within a couple of percentage points up or down, uh, because there is just such a broad, wide-ranging um, consensus uh, within Britain and within British politics, regardless of, um, you know, where, where you stand within British politics, where you stand within the Conservative Party, where you stand within the Parliament. Uh, it, it just looks to be so... Um, such a such a genuine consensus, let's say, that Ukraine has to be assisted militarily, um, heavily. You know um, that that it's not going to make any difference. Frankly, uh, Johnson is going because he made many unforced many an unforced error, um, it, and because of domestic political considerations, he is not going because of anything to do with Ukraine. And anybody who might come up to replace him, pretty much everyone who's remotely likely to be the next Tory leader, basically agrees uh, with the current government policy on Ukraine. Anyway, um, if anything, it was really funny yesterday because some, um, you know, on Russian social media there was some celebration going on, and and some Russian politicians actually said, you know, we we were the ones that that toppled Boris, uh, but I think that they will come to realize, just like Nazi Germany leaders have come to realize in 1945 when FDR died, that it doesn't mean that anything is going to change, because at the end of the day, this is not even like a presidential-like system, however much Boris himself might want it to be. Um, this is a parliamentary system. This is a staunchly parliamentary system. Uh, and it is there, when there's a wide-ranging consensus, consensus within the parliament, such as, it, such as it is within the House of Commons, um, the, the change of leader doesn't change anything when it comes to policy on this particular issue. Um, and even more so, this goes beyond parliament, right? This goes throughout Whitehall, throughout the civil service, as well as throughout the armed forces. And there is a wide-ranging consensus within, seemingly within the civil service and certainly within the MOD and the armed forces that Ukraine has to be held, uh, just as it has been held by Britain um, over, the past, over the past several months, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the 24th. Yeah, so what is the, the chance, uh, what is the temperature here when it comes to our favorite uh, man, the man in the middle, defensive player of the year, the centerpiece of the second reiteration of, of bad boys, uh, Ben Wallace becoming the PM? I don't think he's going to become the next prime, except he has been playing it really safe, which might mean... You know that he'll get he'll, he'll he might wait for others to fight it out and then you know he can um, jump. You mean he, he's he's waging a seventh ballot campaign, right? It's just an Australian exactly <laughs> like a Lincoln Lincoln model. I think Lincoln was was also uh, uh, a candidate that nobody thought about. I'm not 
comparing him to Lincoln yet. Uh, he has some work to do before that. But uh, actually, the the original Ben Wallace, if you can call him that, I think they're ben, but the British Ben Wallace is even less. Uh, but the first Ben Wallace that we, you know, the Afro man from the Detroit Pistons. Uh, had posted a picture of himself uh, with uh, Big Ben in the in the background, saying, "You you guys been asking me if I'm gonna become the British Prime Minister, so here it is." And Ben Wallace, the <laughs> the, the British Ben Wallace, said, "Well, I would vote vote for you." So that was uh, funny, a little Twitter uh, exchange there. Um, oh, excellent. I, he, he's leading. Sorry, I'm just saying that is excellent. However, did I miss that? You it's on my Twitter on, profile. <laughs> Mache, you know what? How did he miss that? He was constantly either talking to people and moderating and unable to read anything, or he was sleeping after a last glass of white wine. Yeah, that, that's probably right. But, but uh, let's go back to Ben Wallace for just a second, Mache, before we ha- head over to John, um, who just joined us here. If I'm not quite mistaken, uh, the polls in the last two days were all seeing him in the lead for what it's worth, and Artois is joining us too. But being in the lead means relatively little, given the fact that two, um, say, challengers, two candidates will be facing off each other. So all sorts of things could happen. John? Yeah, hi, everyone. Thanks for uh, hosting the space, as always. Uh, I just, uh, it's been a very interesting time in British politics at the moment, but um, I hope it doesn't detract from the bigger issue uh, as I see it, which is what's going on in Ukraine. Um, my only observation on Ben Wallace is, <clears throat> sorry, I've got COVID at the moment, so I'm a bit creaky. He's one of a few, a couple of uh, military candidates who could step up. The other one is Rory Stewart, I believe he's called. I'm not very good on conservative politicians. Uh, if 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 Wallace wins, he's he will be a one-term <clears throat> prime minister because he's bald, and the British electorate don't elect bald men. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, no matter how well qualified or how John, competent they are, I love you for saying so. <clears throat> and I'm afraid it's it, you know that's so that's support of social science. Uh, it's not just a it's just not, not a casual observation, and it's made as a as a, a balding man. So. Um, in sympathy, in sympathy with the Tories, I would say he for them he'd be a good um, prime minister for now, given the situation we're in. But it would be for the next two and a half years, or whenever the, ele- the next election is, and that, that and and I think the Tories is the Conservative um, MPs are, are known as the most sophisticated electorate in the world, so they will be making this decision knowing full well that if they elect Ben Wallace, it will they will lose the next election. So, Rory Stewart, however, is, uh, <clears throat> I think he's ex-Special Forces, I can't remember, people on the call will know. Um, and uh, there's a very funny, um, I wish I could find the tweet, but I just, I was scrolling through, and someone has basically done a, a sort of an opening for a movie where he's he's kind of quite physically fit, and, and sort of, it looks like he could have been a Bond, and he lost, I can't remember which... Um, which which runoff it was? It might have been Boris, or it might have been the May when she was elected. But he campaigned and lost. And oh, you mean Tom Tugendhat? No, I mean uh, no. I think he's called Rory Stewart. I can't remember. I'll see if I can find the tweet. I genuinely don't um, know British politicians very so well. So Rory Stewart didn't lose yeah. the runoff. He was, I think, the third or fourth. And then there were four remaining. Yes. I think he was out <laughs> yes. in the last I- one. Um, 
But he's he, no longer an MP, so he stands no chance of being the next Tory leader. Oh, he's no longer an MP. Oh, no. no. So, well, there was a very funny tweet um, where basically, I, I can't, I, I could, I'll try to remember, but basically it's like screen, uh, scene opens, Rory Stewart's meditating on a mountaintop somewhere in, in the Hindu in the Hindu Kush, and you can hear you can hear goat bells uh, clanging in the background, and his hair is gently ruffling in the wind. And he's approached by three, four members of the Conservative 1922 Committee with their heads bowed and without opening. They they walk up to him very softly, and without opening his eyes, he says, "I've been waiting for you." And uh, he's if he was still an MP, he'd be. Um, He'd be, I think, a shoe in, and he he lost that because he sat awkwardly during a television debate. That that's why he uh, one of the main reason why he he got a lot of flack and uh, didn't make it through. So that's how so politics politics. politics. Yes, that's literally it. He sat with his arms folded and it sort of bunched his jacket up and he made him look a bit like a kid because he's you know he's he's quite physically quite fit so. He's got sort of a slender waist and stuff, unlike Boris. So, yeah, I just I think it's a shame that that the minutia British politics are going to have an impact on what for me is the most important world event uh, since the last World War. So, I just hope they don't choose an idiot and they choose someone who's as supportive as Ukraine as the last prime minister for all his faults was. <clears throat> Let's let's have Artois weigh in on uh, not Rory and his uh, neatly wind quaffed hair, but who else can join? Is it going to be Tom Tugentard, Artois? Uh, out, of, out of my mouth, Axel, out of my mouth, um, out of the, the runners and riders so far, uh, Tom Tugentard is actually in the lead for those that have declared. Um, but I would just warn that uh, Conservative uh, leader elections are often more of a a grand national um, than a derby, and um, that's an English horse racing reference for for anyone. Um, and that is to say that the favourites rarely win, um, and often it's someone out of left field that um, that comes out of nowhere at the end. Um, but Tom Tugendhat would, would would certainly, um, in terms of t- to bring back to Ukraine, uh, is is incredibly supportive. Um, he's an extremely intelligent guy. He runs the Foreign Affairs Committee, I think. Uh, very switched on with regards to Russia, um, and uh, yeah, uh, he's also former veteran, um, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and I think some other places. Uh, yeah, very intelligent guy. Look, look, look into him if you're interested in seeing maybe the potential future of the Conservative Party. Um, but yeah, that, out of out of all sort of potential candidates, I think he would probably be preferred um, out of most. I would think. I, I'd probably go along with that. Um, I think one of the Issues is he was a he was a lever during the B word situation, um, but if he's I think the Tories need someone who may have been a lever but is willing to take on board, accept the fact that we're we're, we're not no longer in the European Union, but maybe try and work together more closely and get trade deals and stuff, but not be the sort of person who might threaten to challenge or reverse that decision um so it's an in, it's an interesting one and should they become ever again a uh government aligned because they don't get enough mps say they have to form a an alignment with with uh, the liberal democrats they would come under pressure to to reconsider that that b-word situation so it's um it's an interesting one he's got no ministerial exp- or no sort of senior experience i think 
Tugan Hart, but he's sort of been positioned as as the golden boy for it. And uh, he has a good head of hair, so he'd probably be my favourite. Are we still talking Tom Tugan, Todd? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. I seem to remember he's got quite a good fringe. 